Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for today is from the Gospel according to St. Luke, the 20th chapter. My dear friends in Christ, what would you do if you knew that someone was saying something about you right to your face, but hiding it in lovely, colorful words? What would you do? I tend to think that uh, most of us would probably keep our cool, probably look a little incredulously at that person. Maybe we might speak out a little bit and say, are you talking about me? I doubt that any of us, when this happens, will go right up to a person and try to kill them. But that's exactly what happens to Jesus. The Pharisees and the chief priests know that Jesus is talking about them, and so they try to kill him. Now, it's not just that he's talking about them. I mean, I think most of us, we can ignore pretty much almost anything that's said about us. We tend to be ducks, right? With the water sliding right off our backs. With bad words spoken about us, not really bothering us. Because most of the time, when people speak, we know it's because they're ignorant, right? I mean, we're so self-deluded to think that they're ignorant, because there's probably an element of truth there. But still, we don't go and try to do them harm. But Jesus here is taking these chief priests and these scribes and these elders and these Pharisees, he's taking them to task and he's telling them, you've messed up all of Israel. People are damned if they listen to you. And so everything you have is going to be taken away from you. That's what's going on. In the parable. So when they cry out, surely not. They're not amazed at the fact that these tenants have killed the son of the owner of the vineyard. They're amazed at the fact that the vineyard's being taken away from them. They are so self-deluded that they think the vineyard is theirs and always shall be, that it doesn't belong to another. You see, in the parable, we know what Jesus is saying. Because of what happens to Jesus in really less than two weeks right now, as we're going to celebrate it, because of his crucifixion, as he's taken to trial, as he's put into these courts before Pilate and before Herod and before the chief priest, Jesus here is going to die. And because we know who kills him, we know what's going on in this parable. But you have to imagine, the first hearers of this parable may not have known everything. But the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, they know what Jesus is saying. Because they've been testing him. They've been pushing him. They've been sneaking spies into his ranks. They've been trying to to catch him, to trap him in something that he says, something either against Rome or against Israel so that they might have the chance to crucify him. They know what they're doing. They know when Jesus begins this parable talking about all these tenants of this vineyard and what they do to people who come against them, they know Jesus is talking about them. 
And they know then, when Jesus talks about the servants of the master who come to collect the fruit, who come to collect the crop, they know that they've put these men to death. And that they plan to do it again to the Son of God. They know that they've killed the prophets. Because no prophet really survives Jerusalem. And they know that they're planning on killing this man who calls himself the Son of God. They know Jesus is telling this parable about them. But the people around Jesus, as he's saying it, they may not have figured it out. But you have. You know. You know because, well, we've seen what's to happen. We've seen the self-delusion that pops in here and lets Jesus go to the cross. We've seen the self-delusion that says, I know better than God. We've seen the self-delusion that says, well, my understanding of God's Word is better than someone else's understanding of God's Word. I'm right. They're wrong. It'll always be that way. We've seen the self delusion that takes people out of the church thinking they know better or they can just worship God in their homes or on their fishing boats or in their deer stands. This is very common up in uh, northern Minnesota is that people would say, well, I can uh, approach God out in nature. I hear that here too, but heard it a lot there. Here it's, well, you know, God really would want me to be at the Packer game. God really wants me to be at the Brewers game. I'm not saying those things are bad, but God doesn't want you there. God wants you in his home, the place where he's chosen to dwell, the place that he's given the stewards to manage all the things that come out of this place. Word and sacrament. You see, we become so self-deluded that when this becomes a habit for us, we know better. And so we take ourselves out of the situation. We, we work our vineyard and we take the fruit of that vineyard, we keep it for ourselves, and we remove ourselves from this family, this congregation. This is part of what we've seen here, even at SPI, over the last 20, 25 years. People think that they know better, that they can approach God on their own, that they can do their own thing. This really isn't any different from what is happening with the chief priests and the Pharisees. It's not. You see, they were so self-deluded that they were sure that their traditions were what actually saved the people. They were so sure that they put their faith in what they commanded the people to do so that they would not break the law and thus incur God's wrath. But what they didn't realize was that not breaking the law isn't enough. You have to keep the law perfectly. And the law speaks not just to our actions, but it speaks to our hearts. 
And so the law never was truly intended to save. If you could obey the law perfectly, you would be saved. But if you can't, the law is not intended to save you. It is there to condemn you. God never just has the law over his people. From Adam and Eve all the way to today, God never has had just the law over his people. It has always been met with his mercy and his kindness and his provision, his grace. Always. God never just says, do this and you shall live. He says that, but he never just says this. He says, I shall be a father to my people. I will guide them in paths of righteousness. I will make the streams flow in the desert to give nourishment to my people. He never leaves them alone with the law, but he always provides grace, which is apprehended by faith, which then is what saves you. It is grace through faith alone that saves us. Grace through faith in Christ alone that saves us. Grace through faith. Never the law. And so when we look to the vineyard of the church and we say, all right, like the chief priests and the Pharisees, let's work this place. Let's get the fruit. Let's make it happen. And we're going to keep it for ourselves. Well, that might look a little bit like a church that is very big on the law. All the things that we just do. All the things that people should know. The traditions, the histories. And if you're not part of that, then you're not really a part of the church. I am sure that you have been in churches like this at some point. Or you've heard of churches like this at some point. Because if you don't belong, you don't belong. And if anybody is actually to expect anything other than that, to look to the faith that God has given to us and hold fast to that, to trust in that, that's the thing that saves. That's the fruit of the vineyard, not the works of our hands. But that's what we're tempted to look toward. And that's what we want to keep. And so when the chief priests and the Pharisees thought that they could do this, when they thought by their traditions, their histories, their way of keeping the law, their way of not breaking the law, when they thought that was enough to get their hands working the right way and not worry about their hearts, they had a mistaken, at best, idea about God's vineyard. And they missed the grace of God, the hope of the Messiah who was to come. They missed it completely. So every prophet that came to them and showed them that what they were doing was wrong, what they were saying was wrong, that their hearts were not there even though their lips were, they killed those prophets. They took those prophets of God and murdered them that they would bring God's word to them. Now, often the prophets would bring the law. 
They would condemn those people who they would go to, that God would send them to, because those people were not living as God would have them live. They were not turning their hearts to God. And when they would speak the law, the hope is is that that law would convict those people, would move on them, the Spirit would use that law to move their hearts toward contrition. And that they would repent with their hearts and their minds and their lives. And when that happens, the grace of God always follows. When there is repentance, there is always the forgiveness of sins. But when people have hardened their hearts against God and His Word, there can be no forgiveness. And so people are confirmed in their hardness and are doubly damned by this word of God, especially as they look at the prophet and say, tough luck for you, as they lift their stone above their heads and crush the skull of the prophets. That's the chief priests and the scribes. Now, they thought they were doing good work. They thought... They were doing the work of God to bring forth the fruit of the vineyard, to bring forth the people of Israel before God. Look at us, a holy nation chosen by you that indeed we can be seen as that light to the world. And this is by our works. Look how good we are. We've kept the law in all these ways. You say, obey the Sabbath day. Remember it by keeping it holy. Look, we don't walk more than a mile from our house. You say, keep all the laws of the diets. Look, we have never had crab. We've never had shrimp. And what a horrible life that would be. We've never had crab. We've never had shrimp. We've never eaten a pig. None of this. We've never had a cheeseburger. None of this. We've not murdered people. In fact, we take the murderers, the rebellious, the insurrectionists, and we give them over to the Romans, and they take care of them by crucifying them. We've never murdered. We've never even killed anybody. We don't sleep with people who are not our spouses. We don't take what is not ours. We don't want the things our neighbors have, but instead, we're satisfied with what you've given us. And by these actions, they say, this has made us holy. I've made myself holy. Remember the rich young ruler in Mark, who we think is actually John Mark himself? He comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is a great question. To inherit eternal life. What do you have to, what has to happen for you to inherit? Someone's got to die. But still, I don't know that John Mark knew what he was asking. So Jesus said, well, what does the law tell you? Right? John Mark tells him, obey the commandments. He says, all these things I've done from my youth. John Mark put his trust in his actions. Jesus showed him with his next words. Well, one thing you lack then, go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. The one thing that John Mark lacked was not to sell all that he had and give it to the poor, but it was to come and follow after Jesus. Jesus was showing John Mark that really, truly, it's not about what you do, It's not about what you have, but it is about who you place your trust in. The chief priests and the Pharisees 
put their trust in themselves. I'm going to do this. I can do this. I will save myself. And they did not see that they were not following the tenets of the owner. Instead, they murdered everyone that came to them. And Jesus would be no different. And so, confronted with this, confronted with this story where Jesus says, all that you have is going to be taken away from you and be given to someone new. A new person, a new tenant, a new group of people. They've said, surely not. God wouldn't condemn us this way. God must be pleased with our actions. God must do these things because we've kept his law. And Jesus shows them one thing you lack. You don't follow me. He compares himself to the cornerstone. The one that the builders, the chief priests and the Pharisees, rejected. And that cornerstone is a stone in such a way that if anyone falls upon it, they are broken into pieces. But if that stone falls on anyone, they are crushed. It's kind of an interesting turn of phrase, so to speak. The idea is that if Jesus is the cornerstone, when you fall upon him, when you fall at his feet, when you beg his forgiveness, he breaks you up. He makes it so that you can see that there is no way that you have earned anything of what you're about to get. And when he puts you back together in that resurrection from the dead, you can give all glory to him. But should the stone fall upon you? Should it fall on you without you seeking him? Should it come to you and judge you? It will condemn you. It will crush you to pieces. And there it is. Jesus leaves it right there for the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees and the elders. Jesus leaves it there. From that moment on, they began to try to put him to death. And so it is that we also leave it here because we know what's coming for us. Next week begins Holy Week, starting with Palm Sunday. We follow our Jesus with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem with the people shouting out Hosanna, which means save us now, save us, please. To different people, perhaps, maybe even some of the same, shouting out on Good Friday, crucify, crucify. You see, the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders, they were successful. They took the Son. And murdered him, thinking that by doing so they would actually inherit the church. But they do not know that their Lord is coming at them, not with armies of angels, not with armies of the nations, but with a resurrection. That they will he will raise his own son up from the dead to show that there is no more ability to take from God what is God's. But instead, all that is left to do is to place your trust, to place your faith in he who died and rose for you 
for the forgiveness of your sins. You are welcomed now into the vineyard, not because you belonged to the chief priests, but because you belong to Christ. You are the new tenant that he has put into that place. You are the one that he trusts to take care of what he has and what he owns. But that perhaps is more for another day, a day which is coming very soon, a day in which we see our Lord rise from the dead, never to die again, in which he gives to us everlasting life. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may the peace of God, which passes all human understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.